With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers Radio. And we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. My name is Kimberly Veal. We have Raina Rhodes on the line with us. But I'm going to do something a little different today. I haven't heard my theme song in a while. So we're going to go ahead and play that for you a little bit. And um, we'll get started. It should be a really good show today. Uh, Now I remember why I stopped. They have this new platform, and uh, so anyway, it doesn't matter. How's everybody doing today? Feeling kind of good. It's been raining in Chicago. A little cooler, which is probably why I've been enjoying the weather for the past week. But um, today we're going to talk about radical, revolutionary, and grassroots movements. Um, There is no particular rhyme or reason to any particular movements that we happen to mention, but I'll just, you know, run some off now. You know, you have the Black Lives Matter movement, which is basically, you know, what what is happening now. See the protesters and the activists across the country. The movement for black lives, which is tethered to BLM, and that's basically that's something a little different. Go and look that up so you all can have an idea of what's happening there, as well as Campaign Zero. If you want to look that up too, I listed Occupy Wall Street, OWS, ISO, which is International, is International Socialist Organization. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the Black Power Movement. We talk about the Civil Rights Movement of the 50s and 60s. And one thing I need people to understand is that those are two different movements. The Black Power Movement was not the same as the Civil Rights Movement. They overlapped. They they intersected, if you will. And so, you know, we may talk a little bit about that. You know, we're going to kind of be talking about a few things uh, today. So, you know, I just want you guys to understand the difference between the two. And, you know, with some of the movements, you know, you can take it all the way back with the abolitionists when they wanted to end slavery. You know, we had the union, you know, the workers' movement for, you know, unionized labor um, because, you know, they thought that was radical then. And we're, we're going to talk about a lot of that. So, you know, I'm really excited, you know, to talk about some of these things today and basically, you know, get on and, you know, tell you all what's going on. Now, I'm going to give you a name of a book, and I got some information from this book. And so you can go out and read it for yourself. Um, you can get the ebook. You can probably find it online as well, Um, but it's kind of expensive, so yeah. So the name of this book is Black Movements in America, 
again, black movements in America, revolutionary thought, radical movements. And it was written by Cedric J. Robinson. Okay, so again, black movements in America is written by Cedric J. Robinson. And this is actually a really good book. I have not had the opportunity to read the entire book, which I plan to do real soon, but I'm just going to spit off um, some of the movements that's listed here. Some of these you may have heard of, some not. So you can go and look some of this up yourself. And, you know, it starts out with the title or the chapter called The Coming to America, right? And so um, it's just really interesting because it's talking about colonial America, the colonial English America, um, you know, and it talks about black early movements of resistance, um, diverging political cultures, um, Chapter 2, Slavery and the Constitutions, because a lot of people don't realize that American America had a constitution before the one that we have that was signed on. So, again, it was three American revolutions. Um, basically, the slaves revolution continues. The next chapter, Free Blacks and Resistance, is talking about abolition and free blacks, the black abolitionists. Black Sovereignty and Insurrection. Um, Chapter 4 is talking about the Civil War and its aftermath, you know, the Blacks' War, White Reconstruction and Black Deconstruction. It's also talking about um, opposing objectives, accumulation versus liberty. So I'm just kind of giving you an idea. It's talking about the South and the aftermath, about when, you know, uh, Blacks, basically started leaving the South and coming up North. Um, It's talking about black um, agrarians, which are black farmers, basically, and populism. And what's interesting about black agrarians and populism, go and look that up. That's a really, really interesting history there. I think you all, some of you will get something out of it, and you'll see, uh, you'll find out about how they were using cooperatives and a number of different tactics to make that successful because black farmers actually did well overall, but that's a little different than the sharecroppers. The sharecroppers, that's a totally different, you know, story there. So, you know, go and look that up. Um, There's another one that says Afro-Christianity and the Exodus. Now, I haven't had a chance to read that, but that looks very interesting. But I'm just sharing that with you guys so you can go out and take a look. Um, It's talking here about the anti-lynching movement. So Ida B. Wells, guys, you know, and this is one of the reasons why you hear us um, talking about the anti-lynching movement then and why we need an anti-lynching movement now. And I know I've posted quite a few articles on this, and, you know, maybe we'll make a show out of that, Raina, and kind of delve into that a little bit more. Um, it should be interesting, but, you know, it talks about World War One black self-determination, and under the black self-determination, it talks a little bit about some of the wealthy um, black cities and towns that popped up. And we've talked about that on the show, but it goes a little bit more in depth here. And, you know, I mean, we may bring that back up. We may resurrect that. And so the final chapter is called The Search for Higher Ground. So it's talking about World War II, Black Struggles, the Cold War, the Race War, and then it goes into Civil Rights and Mass Struggle, 
civil rights and the rituals of oppression and the negations of the movement. So it's just, it's, it looks like it's a very interesting book. Like I said, I've read little parts here and there in preparation for the show, but, you know, I would encourage you guys to go online. You know, sometimes you can go over to Google Books, and they let you read quite a bit of this. You know, you, you can't read the entire book, but I've been able to go to Google Books and, you know, read some information, get an idea as to, you know, what I'm interested in um, reading. So, I mean, guys, thank you. Thank you for joining us today, and it's been so much happening in this country. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the news. You know, I kind of cut that out a while ago, and I would just get into the show. But something happened over the weekend that kind of falls into this category. And so it was with Black Lives Matter. And basically they went to the Minnesota State Fair over the weekend, and they shut it down. You know, so, you know, white folks were mad because they couldn't have their funnel cakes, right? So, um, <laughs> you know that, you know I'm telling the truth. You know? <laughs> so there she is. She's awake. Hey, Raina. No, I was awake the whole time. I just was trying to get situated. Please. Oh, I was giving you time. I was giving you time. But I can't you awake. <laughs> anyway, I'll be up earlier than you. Well, totally yeah. you know, nowadays, it used to not be that way. It, yeah, there was a time, you're right, that it used to not be that way. But but for the last, for the last like, three Couple years. years. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, back in the day, I would be at my desk at work, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, got there before everybody else. And in some cases, I would leave after everybody else. But um, right. that's what happens when you're the boss, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, and the meeting went well. <laughs> the meeting went real, real well. I'll tell you about that a little bit later. Yeah. And um, met somebody new. We'll talk about that later. I forgot to tell you earlier this week. Okay. So. All right. Um, yeah. Back to the show. Uh, you know, I'm telling my personal business on the show. So, uh, I can get stuff all out there. Anyway. Uh, 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 so that's why I've been in such a great mood. Anyway, no, I just, it's been the weather here in Chicago. Other people hate it. I love this shit. It's cool. You know, it rains at night, you know, even though I can feel it all in my bones, but I get to sleep well because it's cold. So, anyway, I mean, it's so much to talk about today. Um, it's another show, and that'll be coming out soon. And, you know, we're talking about social justice and the black secular community as well as the black Christian community. And we break some things down. I believe it's going to be a part two to that show because there's so much more that I want to address in that particular show. So, um, we'll see how that comes out next Sunday's show. We will be talking about the prosperity gospel of Donald Trump. Okay, again, that's the prosperity gospel of Donald Trump. Yes, we're going to talk about the prosperity gospel in general, but we're going to talk about how, you know, Donald Trump and some of these mega pastors are the personification, basically, of capitalism on steroids. And, you know, talk a little bit about 
some of the psychology um, about why Donald Trump is surging in the polls. So, you know, that should be a really interesting show. But I can throw something out there now for you all to go and look up beforehand. A prosperity preacher has recently invited Donald Trump to her church. So Paula White, who used to be the pastor of Without Walls, that church that went under, and then she took um, um, that other preacher's church. I forget the name of these churches. But this preacher, that was the one that was found in New York in a hotel room, dead in his hotel room, and, Mm -hmm. you know, due to drugs. There was a preacher that looked like Will Smith. It was not Will Smith, but this preacher looked a lot. forgot his name. Was it Zachary? Anyway, don't look that up. But anyway, um, Paula White has invited Donald Trump to her megachurch. So, you know, you guys may want to go and take a look at that. And, of course, I'll be incorporating some information from that. And if any other mega preachers invite him, invites him, we will talk about that, too. So it should be interesting there. Um, I know some of you are like, where is she going with this? You'll see next week. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so today we're talking about radical, revolutionary, and grassroots movements. And so um, it's just interesting because, you know, there there were a bunch of different movements. I forgot to mention the, the feminist movement, you know, and, you know, they call those movement waves. And, you know, you have people that dispute the terminology of waves, you know, that particular word. I'm not going into all of that. I, call it what you want. Feminist movement. Uh, we had Stonewall, which happened when, for the most part, black and Puerto Rican drag queens got angry and decided to fight back. What's unfortunate about that is that they made a movie and they made a white, cisgendered, hetero man the hero. You know, mm-hmm. and so Miss Major and a lot of the other. Um, um, protesters Wait, he was hetero, dude? I thought he was just yeah, cisgender. Dude, I thought, how the hell did you I make thought, a movie about gay rights with a, with a straight character as a... What? Well, I mean, they gotta have the white... You know what I mean? They gotta have their white yeah, savior. But, yeah, but I mean, you could have a white savior that was gay. That would at least make sense. But you just, no, he he's hetero. not even gay. Right. So, you know, Ms. Major and some of the other activists that were part of Stonewall, they came out and they condemned it. And so quite a few few of us are boycotting the movie. I say I'm boycotting the movie, but I don't go to the movies at all. So I'm boycotting them all, damn it. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't. I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to go see it. If they weren't talking about, like, you know, featuring, uh, you know, featuring some people of color in it, you know, knowing that people of color were, part, you know, were the major participants, you know, I wasn't going. So. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe maybe our caller from Maryland that lives in a wealthy, you know, um, a wealthy county in Maryland, he, he couldn't even say Prince George's. Anyway, maybe you can go out right. and you can make this movie. Maybe you can go out and make this movie since you want to talk about movies, you know, that, that have a real significance, you know. And, again, you know, I'm not knocking the NWA movie. You know, there's there's some problems with some of the people that were part of the group. 
and a lot of issues behind that. But, you know, if these people wanted to spend their money to go see that movie, again, who am I to tell them how to spend their money? But since you want to talk about, you know, all of these tech greats, you know, and all of these people, and, and why don't we go see movies about that? You can go and make a movie about that, or you can make a movie about, you know, Stonewall. You know, you can make a, make a documentary. Quite a few of them are still alive. You know, some of them wrote books. You know, yes, mm-hmm. I'm asking you to read. So, you know, it's just interesting. But um, from that Stonewall movement grew the gay rights movement. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm going to the subject a little bit and just starting out with that because recently, you know, um, DOMA, you know, as well as the Don't Ask, Don't Tell, all of that. And DOMA is Defense of Marriage Act. keep forgetting sometimes I have to say what those, you know, tell you all what these little acronyms mean. But um, it's, it's just interesting because with that particular movement, it was whitewashed. And the reason why they started putting white people but mainly white men at the front of that movement is because they wanted to make it more palatable, if you will, Mm -hmm. to the American public, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to remember we live in a patriarchal society, a patriarchal racist, white supremacist society, you know. And um, the whole thing, you know, that whole movement was interesting because I remember when we had the HIV and AIDS, um, you know, issues and epidemic breaking out in America. And basically, you know, you had act up. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were acting up. They were disrupting, you know, because they wanted them, you know, they wanted the powers that be to, you know, invest more money into AIDS and HIV research and education and in medicines, you know, because, you know, people were dying off quickly. And so, you know, I remember we did a show, and I was talking about a young man out of Missouri, you know, a black young man, who they believed was the first um, diagnosed or first documented case. So, you know, we're going to go back. Maybe we'll do a show about him. So, you know, so anyway, we'll move on. But it was interesting because even when ACT UP was protesting and acting up, if you will, one of the issues was that they were focusing on men, but mainly white men only. And there were women that were being affected by that as well. So that's when you saw more white women joining in, and they started forcing, you know, basically the media and and these, you know, scientists to include testing for women because basically women were just factored out again. And this is something that we see constantly um, in this country. And so... um, you know, it's just really interesting. Sorry about that. I got a text message, and I was trying to figure out what was going on here. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, the women were factored out initially, and then after they started, you know, protesting and acting up as well, you know, they were slowly included in there. And so one of the issues now, and I really feel this, you know, um, now that we have marriage equality, which is wonderful, 
you know, for those that are interested. Um, you know, again, I still think it's kind of unfair. And what I mean by that is, you know, marriage is a contract. And there are certain uh, benefits from being married, you know, like, the, you know, tax breaks that you receive and, um, you know, visitation if you're in a hospital, just, you know, a number of things like that. But what about single people? And, you know, I still say that single people in this country are being screwed. And, you know, I believe that that should be an upcoming movement because, you know, we should have we should be afforded the same rights. A married, a married couple should not receive extra tax incentives because they're married. And then what's interesting is if you're single without children, you, you know, you're in the highest tax bracket. But yet if you get sick and you don't have any insurance, they basically send you home with some, some uh, medication, some ibuprofen, and tell you to go die. So, you know, and, and that's the truth, isn't it, Raina? Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. Oh. Yeah, you know, and I mean, I know some people are out there saying, well, we have the Affordable Care Act now. Yes, but have you seen those plans? You know, it's bare bones. And they're asking a lot of money for those bare bones. You know, and so, you know, go and investigate a look that a little bit. But I'm just happy, you know, we do have the Affordable Care Act. And so, you know, the rate, the percentage of people that were once uninsured, that's now cut in half. So that's great. You know, but, again, the insurance companies won. You know, they were going to win either way it goes. You know, they were able to hedge their bets either way and win. But, you know, I feel we need that um Children, you know, even though there are a lot of protections under the law for children, I feel that children, you know, I still feel that they're at a disadvantage because, unfortunately, you have people out here that believe that their children are their property. And just like you have some people who think that their spouses are their property. But anyway, so, I mean, there have been a number of movements that, you know, happened and I know we talked a little bit about the feminist movement a while ago. Um, and, you know, I want you all to go and look up somebody by the name of Florence Kennedy. And, you know, great black woman pioneer. And um, go and look her up. She had, a you know, a relationship with Gloria Steinem and Jane Fonda, you know, and all of those famous white feminists from back in the day. And she was there with them with Angela Davis and, you know, um, you know, a number of other women, Audrey Lord. I mean, go look these people up, you know, and, and understand what their roles were and understand why those movements were important, you know. But, you know, going back to the LGBTQ movement and even the feminist movement that, you know, we see now, they haven't even dealt with the racism within their movements. And this is why you see, you know, some feminists of color out here, you know, talking about mainstream feminism. This is why you see some LGBTQ people of color talking about mainstream, you know, gay activists in a community. Because, you know, in all of these communities, we still have aspects of racism. We still have aspects of sexism, misogyny, homophobia, yes, you know, LGBTQ people, some of them are homophobic, especially, anyway, so just 
go out, you know, and transphobia, you know, that's really bad in the LGBTQ community. Um, And I don't know, you know, now we have a movement for our trans brothers and sisters, and it's absolutely amazing. You know, last week, um, Black Lives Matter, it was part of their Black August, and so they were lifting up black trans people, but in particular black trans women of color. And men, you know, like we say, you need to stand up for, you know, for, you know, the women in in the community. You know, black men stand up for black women. That includes black trans women. Right. A trans woman is a, is a woman, period. That is how they mm-hmm. identify. And mm-hmm. so, black men, when you stand up for women, we're asking you to stand up for all women, all black women. So, and for those of you, you know, um, you men and women that, you know, may have, you know, may have relationships with trans women of color, you know, it's time to stand up about that, too, because too many of them, they're being killed. I think we're up to 17 this year, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, black trans women, and we need to stand up for them. We need to stand up for them, you know, so... Mm -hmm. It's it's a shame, and especially you, those of you that you know have loving relationships with trans women of color. You, you you can't just sit back and be silent. That's dangerous. That silence is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Now, so you know, I just thought I'd say something about that. Did you want to add something, Raina? No, I think you pretty well covered it. I mean, we have to value all Black lives, and the way to do that is we have to stand for all Black lives. I mean, that, you know, even, you know, even those of, of trans people, I mean, and I say even those, and, and I don't say that for myself, I say that for other people who tend not to see the value in or um, to think of those people as being part of the black community, but they are, you know? That's right. That's right. And, you know, if we were more accepting and more supportive you know, we wouldn't have a lot of the issues that we have because we have a big problem with LGBTQ youth being kicked out of their homes, being abused, um, you know, homeless. And so, you know, they just bought a building here in Chicago for um, homeless LGBTQ youth. And maybe we'll do a show on that and we'll talk about Cindy Lauper and um, – the author from the Golden Girls and how they, um, the author donated some money, you know, to help towards building housing for LGBTQ homeless youth. Cindy Lauper has been opening houses all over the country. It's just been a number of things. So we're starting to see, you know, a quote-unquote revolutionary revolution in thought and in action towards LGBTQ youth, homeless youth. So, I'm really excited about that. I'm really happy that, you know, people are addressing those particular issues. And once I find out the information, uh, more information, because, I mean, I, I know quite a bit of it, but when I do a show, when we do a show, we'll present a lot more information. Don't let me forget that, Raina. So, okay. okay, yeah, I just think that's an important um, topic that we need to talk about, you know. And so you're starting to see a movement for that you know, a movement to help these children. These are kids, you guys. 
these are children getting kicked out of the home at 16, 17 years of age because they dare be who they are. How does that work? And I thought a parent's love was unconditional or it was supposed to be. So anyway, you know, I'm going to move on before I, you know, stand up on that soapbox for way too long. But, um, yeah, you know, we kind of need to be kinder to each other unless it's one of those people who rejects kindness. But, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. Um, when you hear about movements, you know, in a lot of our communities, especially, you know, the black community, you hear more so about the civil rights movement, and every once in a while you hear black power movement. Because, again, they're two separate movements, but a lot of people just combine them as one. And so... You know, I would just say, you know, and go and do some research on that. And so I just picked up a few things and wanted to kind of tell you a little bit about it here. Um, you have reformative social movements. And a reformative social movement advocates for minor changes instead of radical changes. For example, revolutionary movements can scale down their demands and agree to share powers with others, becoming a political party. And it's interesting that Raina posted on my wall today, and it was talking about the Liberty Party. And I kind of think we need to do a show on that and tell you guys, I've got to write that down. Write that down, Raina. Hold on a second. Um, I don't have anything to write it down with, but, I mean, it's on your wall, the Liberty Party. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, um, let me put down here, show on Liberty Party. You know, guys, you go and look that up. And, um, you know, it's interesting, you know. I'm going to write stuff down. LG. Oh, Lord, I can't spell LGBTQU. Okay. So, yeah, go and look that up. And, again, we'll do a show on it because I think that's important for you guys to understand and to know. So, okay, again, it became a political party, revolutionary social movements. Revolutionary movement is a specific type of social movement dedicated to carrying out revolutionary reforms and gain some control of the state. If they do not aim for an exclusive control, they are not revolutionary. Did you hear that? If they do not aim for an exclusive control, they are not revolutionary. You have redemptive social movements. A redemptive social movement is radical in scope, but focused on the individual. Hmm, interesting. So, you know, I picked that up, and, you know, I wanted to talk, you know, not talk about it, but I just wanted to give you an idea that, you know, you have these different movements out here, and it's important for you guys to go and do some research, do some research on your own. And so here it says five crucial factors to the development and success of a revolutionary movement includes mass discontent leading to popular uprisings, dissident political movements with elite participation, strong and unifying motivations across major parts of the society, a significant political crisis affecting the state, reducing its ability or will to deal with the opposition. This is the political opportunity. And external support or last lack of interference on behalf of the state. So that's interesting because You know, I told you all about, and this is the reason why I brought up 
uh, um, Black Lives Matter at the Minnesota State Fair. Basically, what happened was the state officers, the police officers that were out there, they just let them through. They let them, you know, protest, and they protected them because, you know, some of the people, some of the fairgoers wanted to, you know, express their discontent. And But, you know, basically the police officers said it's better to work with them than work against them. And, you know, maybe I'll post that. I, I did post it on my wall yesterday. Go well, look at the comments. Look at the comments. Like I say, nowadays the best part of reading a story are the comments. Not all the time, but sometimes. But, yeah, so, you know, you had people, you know, some white people upset because the cops would not arrest them or, you know, basically beat them into submission. And the police officers were stating that it was easier and better to work with them. So, you know, I'm saying that to say this, look at what's happening. You know, you have now you have um, different departments, different people, instead of trying to beat down the protesters. You know, they're, they're just kind of letting them protest and protecting them somewhat. So, you know, things are changing slowly. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying whether it was successful or not successful, that's not for me to gauge. But what I'm trying to do is show you all how things are slowly changing. Um, and with any of these movements, sometimes these takes, it takes decades to mm-hmm. produce, you know, the type of results that we want. So, um, you know, it's just interesting, but I mean, like I said, you know, we talked about, you know, feminism a little bit, but you got to go back even further than that. You know, women's suffrage laws, you know, women wanted the right to vote, own their own property, you know, those things. And um, it's, it's just interesting, you know, laws protecting the environment, and we're still, you know, that's still happening to this day. You have people out here denying climate change. And, you know, as Raina and I have talked about it, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, some a lot of those people don't care is because it's affecting poor people the most, and in particular, poor people of color. And so, you guys, we just want you to pay attention. As a matter of fact, um, in South Africa, um, the president went to the EU and he basically charged America, Britain, and all of the Western, the great Western societies, he charged them with genocide because mm-hmm. it's getting hotter and hotter in that region. And mm-hmm. these Western, you know, countries, cultures, they are not basically taking it serious or putting anything into effect that will, you know, help to alleviate some of that. And so, you know, there are people over in South Africa that are dying. So, you know, again, you know, we want you to pay attention to what's happening, you know, and and, and people didn't believe that women had the right to vote and own property, just like the environment then. You know, you had people then and now saying, oh, well, it's God's country. He'll fix it. So it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, even with consumers, Um, There used to be a time that there were no consumer laws, you know, consumer protection laws, you know, and that's one of the things that made Clark Howard and Elizabeth Warren and a number of others, you know, this is what made them famous, you know, Ralph Nader. So, you know, go back and look 
you know, at that. And, again, we talked about anti-lynching a little bit, but, you know, um, they said it was the end to lynching, but not so much. I mean, there have been some incidents this year of people being lynched. And, you know, there are different ways, but it's just, you know, the, the state violence against black and brown bodies. Yeah, I know, but, I mean, all of this is incorporated into it. And it's horrible, you know. Um, workers, you know, workers' party, workers' unions, you know, worker laws. That was considered radical at one point because you got to remember they didn't always have a 40-hour-a-week work week. You know, they were working more than, than that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then children were allowed to work, and they were working those children to death as well. Yep. So, you know, they have to make laws protecting the children to a certain degree. And I still think we need to take that even further. Um, mm-hmm. So, I think, again, you know, these were considered radical in the day. And, you know, since we're going to be talking about workers, for those of you that are in the atheist community, you need to go and look up Asa Philip Randolph. Sometimes it's called mm-hmm. A. Philip Randolph. But Asa Philip Randolph and the Porter's, you know, Pullman Union. That was here in Chicago. There's a museum here in Chicago on the south side. That's free during the summer, you know. The Brotherhood so, of Sleeping Car Porters is, is their, their yeah, actual thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. But, yeah, the Brotherhood of Pullman, say that again. Pullman Car, car Porters. It's Sleeping Car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, you know, go and look that up. And uh, for those of you that live in Chicago, if you haven't had the opportunity to go to that museum, I would definitely recommend that. And also, if you get a chance to go over to the DuSable Museum, they have a lot of information and just, you know, artifacts and all of that there as well. But, you know, at one point in time, you know, unionizing was considered radical. And that's one of the problems that we see today. That's why when I see, you know, the um, GOP reality show, you know, where they're running for, you know, president of the United States, every time I see Scott Walker, I want to convulse. And for mm-hmm. those of you who are not familiar with Scott Walker, just look that up. Look up his role in Wisconsin. Look up how he's been, you know, how he's basically been attacking unions. And, I mean, you can even do that with Rauner here in, in Illinois. You know, the black preachers out there that supported Rauner, we haven't forgotten that yet. So, um, yeah, you know, go and look this stuff up. You know, it's still relevant today because that's what what's happening. You know, I, I had one young man that got angry with me because he wanted me to do a show on splintering the labor. And basically, you know, I was asking him for more information. I knew he was, you know, what he was getting at. and But I just wanted him to, you know, come up and, you know, just, just tell me a little bit more about where he was coming from. But, you know, he got angry. So, I mean, but we will talk about this. We will talk about workers' rights. We will talk about, you know, um, unions and all of that. It's just a matter of time. And the other thing is, the other thing to understand is that black people never splintered the labor. Black people, black people were were um, left out of those considerations because the labor movement and a lot of other progressive movements wanted to make sure that they 
held on to their white supporters. So in an right. effort to do that, they they act they pushed the concerns of people of color to the background. Mhm. Exactly. That's exactly what happened, and mm-hmm. that's why you had people like Asa Philip Randolph out of Chicago. Go look up Lucy Parsons. She's from Chicago mm-hmm. too, and she's also she's a woman of color. Um, in addition to that, she's part of you know the free thought community, and she was once called the most dangerous woman in the world, or the most dangerous woman in America, something like that. But look up Lucy Parsons, you know that one. She was woo wee, so you know she was out here leading protests. You know, you know she was one of the you know fiercest activists. Um, Raina and I have talked about her a little bit and had some chuckles, but you know, look her up. I mean, and, you up. know, I mean, Lucy Parsons had her problems. I don't think that Lucy Parsons really understood race as well as she should have. Um, Lucy Parsons was of mixed race heritage, and you know, she, you know, she was in an interracial marriage, and you know, um, I don't think that she understood um, how race was even a factor within the progressive movement, but, you know, she was still quite radical in in a lot of different ways. Exactly. And that's why I say you and I have our chuckles because telling some of those Mm -hmm. stories, it's hilarious. You know, if you Mm -hmm. all are tripping about what's happening now, in all honesty, what's happening now is mild compared to what was going on then. And when you go and you start reading some of those stories, I think I want to do a show. Let me me write it down. You know, beats of the past. And I would give you some input as to what I mean by beats of the past, but, you know, we have people stealing our material. So when I talk about doing, when we do this show, it'll just be done then. But I think Raina knows where I'm going with that. So um, Mm -hmm. it's just interesting. But, um, you know, and again, another, you know, radical movement was about the income tax, having a progressive income tax. And that's still going on to this day. You know, I was talking with someone yesterday, and we were talking about how America is now an oligarchy. And, mm-hmm. you know, about the factorism that's taking place. And so, you know, go and read that and look that up. You know, that's why I keep bringing up people like Ralph Nader, Elizabeth Warren, you know, because they're continuing, you know, that fight for the consumer, for, you know, the the average American citizen. And it's a lot of people that were disappointed because Elizabeth Warren decided not to run um, for POTUS, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, just go ahead. No, keep going. Okay, so... Again, you know, you have people out here angry because people are wanting, you know, a $15 minimum wage. Do you know at one point in time there was no such thing as a minimum wage? And the Republicans are actually trying to take the minimum wage away. Mm-hmm. They feel like there be no minimum wage whatsoever. So I want you to go and think about that. You know, and that was once considered radical just to have a minimum wage. You know, what I find interesting is I hear a lot of you, $15 just to serve me a fries and shake, but you say nothing about these, you know, CEOs and the board of directors 
you know, making $10, 20 $50, million a year. Jamie Dimon, you know, that guy, Jamie Dimon, you know, money is just dripping off of him. You hear me? And that's J.P. Mm-hmm. Morgan Chase, those of you that don't know. So um, it's, it's the whole thing is interesting, but, yeah, you know, the minimum wage. And so I'm just trying to give you all some examples of movements and thoughts and, you know, that were considered revolutionary and radical so that you can have an idea because a lot of people don't know about this. You know, so I'm taking my time a little bit today and telling you about a few of them so that you can kind of, you know, get a better understanding. I'm hoping that this piques your interest and encourages you to go out and do some research, you know, because, you know, unfortunately they don't teach a lot of this day, and I don't think they teach really any of this in school. You know, and and as Red Ninja said, you know, they they teach it in college, but that's after you pay for the course, you know. So, I mean, I mean, I went. I have a shitload of books, and I treated myself this weekend, Raina. I bought five e-books, and um, I got them at a good price. I'll, I'll send you some links. You probably already have them. So anyway, um, yeah. yeah okay, cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, so it's, it's interesting, you know. Um, one thing that should concern us all back when this was considered radical to have insurance, life insurance on, you know, our elders, our seniors, our geriatrics. That was once considered radical. So, I mean, it's just, you just wouldn't believe, you know, some of these things. You know, so I have a bunch of them listed, and this is the main one that, you know, many of us should be concerned with, you know, the dismantling of Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. They've just been reading to broken windows. You know, Jim Crow is still in effect. You know, yeah, actually, I was reading. I was reading somewhere that Alabama just reduced the number of its um, of its driver uh, motor vehicle locations to like four. Oh yeah, four. So, so people can't register to vote. Uh huh. See, guys, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. You know, they made it real difficult for you to register to vote, especially at the DMVs. I went one time. I had to go three times. I was pissed. Oh, you remember that, Raina? I was pissed. It was yeah. just summer and it was hot. You were not pleased, like, at all. I remember. That was funny. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you give me a driver's license, but you won't fucking register me to vote. Because I had to renew my driver's license, so I'm like, yeah, let's do all of that. I mean, I was already registered, but whenever I go to the DMD, I always re-register to make sure my shit is fresh and tight, right? And I was mad. I was mad. Oh, I was so bad. But you can register online now. You know, they've made it easier for you to be able to register to vote online. And it's more than just registering. Please show up. Go. Go vote. Especially during the midterms, you know, you need to know who your governor is. You need to know who represents you in your state house. You know, that is why the Republicans have taken over quite a few of the governorships and quite a few of the state houses. And the reason why, that is where the power is, people. Mm -hmm. That is where the real power is. And you need to understand that. So, and yes, they're making it harder for people to vote. 
you know, harder for students to vote. You know, students are going to, or attending colleges or universities outside of, you know, their home city or town or whatever village. You know, you used to be able to be a college student and vote without a problem or send in your absentee ballot, but they, they are making that even more difficult. And, you know, it's interesting because I know Raina and I talked about, you know, the different prisons that are being built and put in rural white communities. And those prisoners mm-hmm. are counted as part of the census. Right. And this is what determines how many representatives they get to send to Congress. You know, mm-hmm. but the problem is if you build prisons, then you're going to have people of color moving there, number one, to be, you know, some of them want to be closer to their family. Number two, there are job opportunities. So, you know, there was a town here in Illinois called Pekin, P-E-K-I-N. It was one of those towns like Forsyth, Georgia, the ones that told Oprah they didn't even want her there. You know, very, very mm-hmm. racist city. And when they decided to build that prison in Pekin, all hell broke loose. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, no, nah, they didn't like them no black folks out there. You know, so um, just doing some research. You know, I'm just throwing some examples out there. You know, it's not exclusive to Forsyth County, Georgia, or Pekin, Illinois. Um, you know, I can tell you about cities in other, you know, states, but go and look it up. You know, you probably know of some. Share that with us. I mean, that's fine. You know, so, I mean, I'm just giving you all some examples, but, you know, the Jim Crow laws, that is part of what's happening with this movement for black lives. You know, you know what some of this is what we're addressing. You know, they don't necessarily call it Jim Crow laws anymore, but the premise is the same. So it's just right. it's important for you guys to understand that. Um, you know, the eight-hour workday, you know, that goes back to your 40-hour work week with the eight-hour workday. You know, in certain industries, you know, you don't even have a 40-hour work week. You have 37 and a half, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you just it's important, I mean, not to necessarily be an expert on all of this because we're not, you know, but it's, it's, it's good to be, you know, informed and know a little bit about these things, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and again, government subsidized health care, Affordable Care Act, or for those of you out there who like to call it Obamacare, and that's still ongoing because I was a little upset because it should have been, you know, single payer added in. You know, that just would have made mm-hmm. so much more sense. And for those of you that are out there upset about it, I mean, look at all of these other developed countries, Western societies, where they have, you know, health care available to everybody for free. For free. How about that? For free. So, you know, right. again, like I said, insurance companies, one, either way it goes, because we have to pay for it. Even though, you you know, you can write it off, write some of it off on your taxes. But, you know, that's once a year. You know, what about the other 11 months of the year? But you got to take that money out of your pocket. So, you know, you just need to look into all of these things. Um, it's, it's just interesting, you know, government housing, you know, and that was then and even now. But, you know, they had to, you know, fight for government housing because, again, it's, it's just, you know, let me write, let me write this down. I want to do a show on you know, projects, even though we did talk about redlining and, um, 
and, you know, FHA and the loans and all of that, I want to do a show specifically on housing projects, and it won't be good times. But, you know, good times took place here in Chicago, and they tore down, you know, Cabrini Green. And you had a bunch of them, Cabrini Green, Ida B. Wells, um, Number Squares, it's a bunch of them, you know. And so, you know, maybe we'll do a show talking specifically about the housing projects and the racism behind that then and now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, this here, I'm at a make note, I want to make sure we talk about Section 8 and um, even, you know, senior housing. So um, I'm writing it down, you guys. Um, go and read that and go look it up. Because, I mean, even now, I'm going to tell you something you probably didn't know. Some of you know this. But for those that are fortunate enough to get a Section 8 voucher, again, that comes through the state. The federal government gives money to the states to maintain these programs, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's not only Section 8, but it's with the food stamps as well as um, public welfare, public aid. What happens is the states, what they do, they do everything in their power to push people off, and they have all of these arbitrary policies that will cause you to basically lose your benefits. Now, you know, you know, if you're not paying attention, you would think that all the people that they're pushing off the road, that that money would go back to the federal. But most people don't even think about where the money is going. But let me tell you where the money is going. It goes back, it stays in the state, and then they're able to allocate those funds to their pet projects. So they're still receiving mm-hmm. the same amount of money from the federal government. But they don't push, you know, 100 people off of, you know, public aid. Um, they've taken their link away. They've taken their Section 8 away. And so, you know, these are, man, I mean, seriously, gosh, you know, you need to go out and look. And I, and I think it's important that I give you all these examples, you know, because, you know, you have different movements. And, you know, when I'm talking about different movements, you know, you hear me call out specific ones. And I'm not calling out specific ones here because there were different ones. And I want you to go and research this, guys. It's important that you all understand that, you know. Um, and so it's interesting because um, it's like this, you know, what's considered radical, you know, to one generation because, you know, back in the 50s and 60s with the black power, civil rights movement, you know, those were considered radical ideas, you know. and But now with this generation, you know, with this generation now and subsequent generations, basically they were they were deemed as common sense. So, you know, they were considered radical then, but now they're deemed common sense. So it's it's just interesting how it makes that transition. So it's just as important for you guys to go and um, find that out. But, you know, you know these particular social movements or these so-called radical ideas, basically they started with, you know, people who were considered um, on the margins, you know, so marginalized people, or as they like to say sometimes, you know, the fringes, you know. So, and we talked about this a little bit on that social justice show, but, you know, this is where these radical movements really are, give, you know, birthed. 
they're birthed, you know, by marginalized people, people who are considered the fringes of mainstream society. So, um, you know, it's just it's, it's important for you guys to understand how these movements progress and how it changes, you know, not only, you know, policies and laws, but also, you know, people's mindsets. It's important for you all to know about that. So, you know, you got to go and do some research on how it, you know, basically goes from polemics to policy, you know. So it's it's important for you guys to go and um, research that. You can tell when I'm writing something because I get quiet. So, you know, so just mm-hmm. go and look at that. And uh, and the thing is, is that you got to understand that with all of these, you know, so-called fringe movements or fringe ideas, if you will, basically we were able, they were able to get these done. And it, you know, man, remember that song by uh, Phil Collins, Against All Odds? That's yeah, what this I is. Think so. Yeah, you know, it was like, you know, it was overwhelming odds. We, You know, people never thought that it could be done. So that's why, you know, I'm always encouraging these young people, especially the ones that are out here protesting now, you know, to get out there. You know, it can happen. We can make this work. we got to stick with it, you know. And so, I mean, on the Social Justice Show, we talked about how some parts of the Black Lives Matter movement has been co-opted, but I just feel like there's a way to kind of chop that off and rebuild that and let them go do whatever it is they're over there doing, you know. But um, it's it's real interesting. But, yeah, you know, the people that were fighting for that, you know, they just believe deep down in their hearts that, you know, they could make a change. And they were able to make these changes, you know. Like I said, what we're seeing now, I never thought that I would see this in my lifetime, which is why I have no problem supporting them in any way that I can. You know, I'm not taking no tear gas or no pepper spray, but, you know, um, you know, I'm supportive. And the only reason why I say that and I joke about it is because um, with my illness, that can really do um, substantial damage to me. So um, I think I serve you better alive than dead. So, again, you know, like I said, it took decades for some of these um, movements to, you know, actually produce or yield results. And some are, you know, works in progress, you know, whips, work in progress. And so that's what you're seeing today. You know, you see, like I said, Ralph Nader, Clark Howard, Elizabeth Warren, you know, out here talking about consumer rights, um, challenging the tax laws and, um, you know, just a number of different laws, you know, especially some of these trade laws. Elizabeth Warren has been all over that. So, you know, we we need to know and understand, you know, what took place and how we can help and what our roles are, you know. And so it's interesting because in this country in particular, you'll hear people use words like radical or revolutionary or socialist or um, communist, and they mm-hmm. use it in, in like it's an epithet, right? Like it's some type of cuss word, like it's some kind of bad thing, or you know, um, it's just it's, it's interesting.
you know, the use of words. And one of the reasons why I'm kind of bringing up um, socialism and communism is because, you know, a lot of people don't realize in God we trust on our money that wasn't there once. Um, under right. God, it's a pledge of allegiance that wasn't there once. That came right. about with the Red Scare, right, with McCarthyism. Right. And so, you know, mm-hmm. now you have organizations out here fighting to get in God we trust off the money and out of the pledge. They want to take it back to, you know, the original meaning. And so, you know, that's a movement, you know, and that's happening, you know, with a number of people, religious as well as secular. Because, I mean, some secular people don't realize that there are quite a few religious people who also believe in separation of the church and state. And they're working towards that. As a matter of fact, the religious people that are working towards, you know, the separation of church and state, they're actually more successful than the secular community at trying to advance that. Now, how about that shit? Right. You know, and that's Mm -hmm. why I'm sitting here, and I look at the secular community sometimes, and I'm like, what you think you're doing is not unique, it's not new. And, you know, a lot of people over here saying that there is a movement in the secular community. Uh, I I used to believe that. Now, not so much. You know, um, I'm not seeing any real progress. You know, I'm not seeing any real organization. So, I mean, you know, that's, you know, many, many schools of thought on that. So, but again, you know, I just had to make sure that you all understand that, you know, the religious people who are out here advocating for the separation of church and state, they've had more successes than we've had in the secular community. And there are a lot of you out here that do not want to work with religious people under any circumstances whatsoever. Well, That's the reason why I'm saying that this is not a real movement, because you're going to have to work with them. We are an extremely minute percentage of the population, okay? And, you know, they say the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yeah, we're out here. But at the end of the day, they outnumber us massively. Mm -hmm. Not only in you know head count, but also financially. And there are some things that we can learn from them. Number one, how to organize. Number two, how to effectively make change without pissing everybody else off. Okay, so you know I want you guys to definitely go and look that up about different religious groups that are out here advocating for the separation of church and state. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, you have people that use that word radical, like, again, socialist, communist, and so, you know, they basically are saying that we're extreme. Um, Some people feel that we're unstable. (laughs) And basically, you know, it's it's just interesting. Um, But, you know, one, one movement, that I, you know, want to touch on briefly, the Occupy Wall Street movement. So you did have some extremists there. You know, you had some anarchists. But there's a lot that has 
a lot of good things that have come from Occupy Wall Street. And if you look at what's happening with Black Lives Matter, a lot of those tactics and strategies have been incorporated into this particular platform. And so I think it's important for you guys to understand and go take a look because I'm going to talk a little bit later um, about a group that went out and basically they were protesting against the government and how some of their strategies were used in the civil rights movement. So that will be coming up later. But just kind of want to give you a heads up on that. And what's interesting is that in this country, when people call you a radical, a socialist, or a communist, you know, that basically that is their way of dismissing you. You know, dismissing mm-hmm. you, dismissing your idea by giving you these terms or labeling you with these terms. You know, and basically, you know, whenever you try to, you know, um, basically talk about programs that will advance, you know, people of color, communities of color, poor people, the homeless, children, I mean, they'll label you with that and 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 are angry because you dare to try to expand and include people in a social safety net. And, you know, we've been talking about that and, and how basically they're trying to push all of the social safety nets off of the government register mm-hmm. and put them in the hands of churches. Okay, and see, the GOP is really pushing that and pushing, you know, these programs for the church to administer. But they know that the church will not be able to administer all of that effectively. They're not equipped to do that. And so what will happen is, you know, there will be many failures, but yet that money will still go to the state because the states are the ones that distribute the funds. And basically, again, like I said earlier, they get to keep the money, and they get to use it to build bridges, you know, to nowhere. And so it's important that you guys understand what's happening and why and the consequences and repercussions of what's happening out here. So, I mean, I know some people are like, man, I feel like I'm in school. No, you didn't learn this in school. That's why we got to go this way and, and, and give you the examples now. Because, you know, you need, to be, you need to be equipped. You need to be able to answer people. I remember, you know, when I was much younger and I would have debates with people, and I knew what I was saying was right, but I didn't have any, you know, facts or evidence to back it up. And I would get so angry and upset, but not anymore. So it's like, you know, guys, you know, this information, this history, you know, that's power. That is power. So, you know, again, um, you know, you're going to have people hurling these labels at you, you know. No, don't let that dissuade you in any manner whatsoever. And so, yeah, it's just interesting. Um, And anyone, like I said, if you even remotely identify as, you know, being a socialist or, you know, a communist or something like that, Basically, you know, they just assume that you have nothing to contribute. You know, they they write you off as being illegitimate. They write you off as being a troublemaker. Um, You know, they basically say that your arguments are without merit. You know, you have no plausibility. 
So, you know, I just want to make sure that you all go out and you understand what's happening. And, you know, one thing that I do want to say, um, and I think this is important because people forget this, and, you know, we kind of have this problem, you know, in America in particular. The people that the people that lead these movements, the people that run these movements, these activists, the protesters, God, you got to remember they're human. Many of them have nine to fives. Many of them, you know, run their own organizations. More than one job. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, many of them have children and families that they still got to go home and take care of. And one thing that we do in this country is we try to make people like this, you know, Superman or Superwoman. And they're not that. And when they prove not to be Superman or Superwoman, then people get disappointed and, you know, and and start talking mad shit and hating on them. But the thing is, is that they're not superhuman. And we have to stop treating them that way because it's unfair. It's unfair to them and it's also unfair to you. You know, so you got to think about that. They're human. They have lives. They cry like us. They hurt like us. They got to put their pants on one, you know, leg at a time, unless you're sitting on a bed and you put two on, but that's another story. But, um, guys, you know, some of the expectations that people put on others that are, you know, public figures, it's unfair. You know, and I'll just go on and be honest, you know, a lot of people put those same expectations on their pastors, ministers, priests, rabbis, what have you. That's not right. They're human. They're regular, everyday person like the rest of us. Now, they're selling you a brand. They're selling you an image. Some of them. Some of them. So you got to understand the difference between the two. So I don't know. I just wanted to put that out there because, you know, some of the things I've been seeing the past couple of weeks, you know, have been extremely disturbing to me. So, um, yeah. Yeah, guys, you know, it's it's important for you to go back and, you know, read up and understand these radicals who were considered, you know, the fringes of society, you know, troublemakers, and, you know, out here sowing seeds of dissent. You know, that's, that's how they, you know, like to call, you know, that's what they like to call them and what they like to say, you know. So, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, there is, you know, a lot that's been going on and just trying to keep you guys updated and so that we can keep things in perspective, you know. And, you know, like I said, we talked a little bit about um, the abolitionists. And basically, you know, you had them walking around saying that other human beings are not your property, and they wanted to abolish slavery, you know, of course people thought that they were crazy. Some people thought that they were crazy and absurd because this is how some folks made their livings. They made their livings and their wealth off of the backs of slaves, free labor, you know, and they would would lend their slaves out to other people. They would teach them these different trades, and then basically send them out there and trade them out there like they were tech workers, right? right. So, you know, it's a 
thought about that, that you guys, you know, you want to go and take a look, especially if you're reading some of the textbooks in Texas. You know, their description of slavery is much different than, you know, what we know it to be. So, you know, like I said, I'm (laughs) hoping that encourages you guys to go out and read and, you know, see what's really happening out here, you know, and what's considered radical, you know, or what was once considered radical, but now we see it as common sense. We see it as, you know, oh, that's right. That's the right thing to do. You don't even think about it. You don't even think twice. You need to go back and read and learn some history and understand how that came to be. It wasn't just always like that. People, people have died. People have been maimed. People, you know, they had their reputations killed. I mean, just a number of things to give you, you know, some of the rights that we have now. You know, you may want to go and look up and see what happened to people like Cesar Chavez and, you know, some of the Latinos or in some of the mestizos, the Mexicans that were, you know, gravely mistreated. Also, some of the Asians that were brought to this country as indentured servants. You know, you need to go and read about the internment camps. You know, not only was Asian people, but, you know, they had some, you know, the Eskimos, the Aleutians, in internment camps. So I did a paper on that. I think I got an A. Anyway, so um, go ahead and look that up. You know, just like, you know, Martin Luther King and, like I said, Cesar Chavez and, you know, people like that, they were considered radical. And if you go and you look at the latter part of Martin Luther King's movement, basically, you know, his writings changed. They became more radical. And he was surrounded by people like um, Asa Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin and, you know, James Baldwin. And that's just a few of the names, just a few. You know, that's a very, very rich history that I would tell you to go and look up. But, you know, basically, you know, with um, J. Edgar Hoover, he he had issues with Martin Luther King, and he basically, he was trying to kill MLK's reputation by, you know, putting out there that he was surrounded by socialists and communists. And so that's what I'm saying, guys. Go back and read about McCarthyism and, you know, how In God was put on the, you know, our monies and how in, Under God was put into the pledge. It's a very interesting um, history, you know. So, I mean, we just got to, you know, be careful, you know, in, in how we go about doing things and just information that we accept as being facts without doing any research. You need to do research. Right. Question everything. Question sure. everything. This, yeah, you know, this didn't just pop up. It's been around for a while, but, you know, there was once was a time when it was considered radical, you know, and, and absurd. And, you know, the people were considered, they were trying to promote these ideas. They were they were seen as being crazy. So, you know, you know guys, go and look it up, you know. And so, you know, a little bit earlier I was talking about some of this, you know, I, I said I was going to get to this, about how during the Civil Rights Movement, um, basically, some of the tactics in the civil rights movement came from, um, you know, another movement, another protest. And so, um, 
I'm looking for the information here. But basically, okay, so yeah, it began with eight students at Union Theological Seminary in New York who were opposed to forced conscription during the Second World War, which they viewed as a form of the fascism they were supposed to be fighting. And so basically they embraced the banner of radical um, pacifists, right? And mm-hmm. basically they they pioneered some of the tactics that were employed within the civil rights movement. And I actually, you know, I want to do a show about that specifically because some of this I did not know. You know, so, you know, I'm learning um as, you know, I'm researching and bringing this information to you. Did you know anything about this, Raina? Um, no, I don't believe so. Mm-mm, I don't, it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I thought this was very interesting, you know, very interesting um, piece of history. And I actually want to um, look this up. And read about it, you know, because, you know, they developed some of the tactics. Um, and I just thought that was amazing because I never heard of that. Never. So, you know, we're learning together. So, you know, I'll read it to you guys again. You know, a, a movement was started by eight students at Union Theological Seminary in New York who were opposed to forced conscription during the Second World War which they viewed as a form of fascism that we were supposed to be fighting against. And so basically, you know, those tactics were employed within the civil rights movement, some of the tactics that, you know, they put in play. And, you know, what's interesting Mm -hmm. is I know one of the arguments that, you know, are consistent and I see on a consistent basis is when you see these other movements like the LGBTQ movement, so on and so forth, employing tactics from the civil rights movement, and then there's a lot of fighting about that because basically, you know, some members of, you know, the black community do not want LGBTQ community and other movements to call themselves civil rights movements. You know, we all know that there are different types of civil rights movements. But when you start giving examples about the, you know, the, about what happened to SNCC and, you know, getting, you know, um, water holes and all of those things, when you start describing what black people went through to 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 kind of boulder, you know, um, your your argument for this other group, that is when we get angry. Because you weren't bit by dogs. You weren't, you know, spit on. You didn't have food and, and, and all of that poured on you. You didn't have people, you know, blowing smoke in your face. And you're supposed to sit there and deal with it and, and give no response. So I think it's more so when they give examples of the civil rights movement in the black community to justify something. I think that's where some of the disconnect is coming in. And where some of the resentment, I mean, but, you know, the tactics, you know, I mean, if it's effective, use it. You know, but, mm-hmm. it, you know, because I know I got upset when somebody, you know, basically, you know, tried to use the black civil rights movement as an example for them to get, you know, a 20% discount on their meal. Yeah, that pissed me off. Mm-hmm. You know, because we weren't fighting. 
to get a 10, 20% discount, you know, on our, you know, on food. That's not, and I, it's just, it's unfair. It's a false equivalence. Mm-hmm. Am I right, Raina? No, you're right. You're absolutely right. It is a false equivalence. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just interesting, but I'm going to read you a little bit more of the history about those eight people. And so basically it says here, members of this group went on to form the Congress of Racial Equality, staging the first well-organized systemic use of the sit-in tactic against Jim Crow facilities in American history at a restaurant called Stoners in Chicago in late eight, I'm sorry, in late 1942. Isn't that interesting? I didn't know about yeah. that either. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, of course, you know, I'm going to do a show about that. You know, because I just think this is interesting. I don't know anything about it right now, but trust me, in a month or so, I'm going to have enough enough under my belt to, you know, be able, not even a month or two, really, it'll be a couple of weeks when I get time. Um, but I knew nothing of this. I knew nothing of this. And so then I'm going to give you a little bit more information. Saul Olinsky, the father of American community organizing, echoed the call in Reveal for Radicals, writing, America has begun its radicals. Wait a minute. Yeah, America was begun by its radicals. America was built by its radicals. The hope and future of America lies with its radicals. He defined the radical as that unique person who actually believes what he says, that person to whom the common good is the greatest personal value, that person who genuinely and completely believes in mankind. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Saul Alinsky, go and look up the Weather Underground. There's actually a documentary on it on the Sundance um, Sundance Docs website. I haven't watched it yet, though. Excellent. Put it on my wall when you get a chance so that they can go and see that, and I'll repost it in a few places. But, yeah, Saul Alinsky. And, you know, what's interesting about Saul Alinsky is when President Obama was running for office, you know, back in 2007, 2008, um, you know, you had Republicans basically, you know, tying him to Saul Alinsky because of the community organizing. And so when they talk about Saul Alinsky, they they use it in a very derogatory manner, okay? And then that's why, you know, they were, you know, basically mocking and ridiculing President Obama, calling him a community activist. Okay, so, I mean, again, just trying to put some of this in context for you guys because I think it's important for you guys to know this. And I'm sitting here, and I'm only halfway through my notes, and I'm laughing because I still haven't gotten to this book. Um, You know, maybe we'll do a part two. I don't know. It just really depends on how I feel. But now we're doing the um, prosperity of gospel of Donald Trump next week. I got something to say about that. And so, you know, um, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I'll read the last part that I have written here. It says, to me, radicalism, and this is Saul Olinsky still speaking, so I just want to make sure you understand that. He said, to me, radicalism means working tirelessly for more democratic workplaces, communities, households, and relationships, 
but is also open to the substantial societal change needed to undermine the continued oppression, poverty, and despair so many face globally. It isn't, a dog, it isn't as dogmatic as, as it's often portrayed and requires a willingness to sacrifice some of your own sacred cows to create a better, more just world, a truly radical notion. It's time that America dumps its fear of radicals and embraces their political beliefs. So, you know, that was a word from Saul Alinsky there. And go and look that up. You want to go look up CORE as well, which is the Congress of Racial Equality. Now, I heard, and I've done some reading on the CORE, you know, on the Congress of Racial Equality, but now I'm going to be reading it, you know, with a different eye, with a different perspective, um, you know, because I did not know some of this. So, mm-hmm. of course, I was fascinated, you know, when I did find out about it. So it's just it's interesting, Um how all of this has come about. And, yeah, I'm going to tell you guys, this is part one. I'm going to do a second part to this um, because um, there's a lot of information. Or, I mean, I don't know. I want to do a second part, but I also want to encourage you to go and read and research on your own. But I think I'd be doing you a disservice by not... um, you know, you know, not adding on and giving you other information that you need um, in order to better understand this. But, you know, I just think it's important. Go back, do some research, and I definitely want to expound on this. But um, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, what I have written here, it says, race functions as a highly durable and oppressive technology yet race simultaneously provided a political space for 20th century intellectuals and activists to enlarge upon the public meaning of words like freedom and democracy. And so, um, you know, basically, you know, when I wrote that, I copied it, and it was, you know, talking about these social movements within the black community, you know, civil rights movements and all of that, and, you know, putting, you know, the function of race in perspective because, you know, again, we've talked about capitalism just in in general. We haven't done a show on it specifically yet. Um, I'm actually trying to get through um, the book, The Other Half, and it's talking about, you know, capitalism, how it's built on slavery, but, you know, race in and of itself, you know, um, is a commodity. And what I mean by that is you have people out here who basically build their careers and their wealth off of pathologizing different races and cultures, if you will. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's a whole system behind that, you know, and I'm kind of being cautious with what I'm saying because I want to make sure that I state it correctly. But, you know, but I mean, not only with, you know, um, you have white people also who make money off of the function of race and, and, and the commodity of race. 
So, but white you know, people that's... benefit from it substantially, uh, benefit from it the most. Exactly. 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 And that's why I was kind of being careful with that, you know, mm-hmm. because, I mean, one, one, one beautiful example of that, and when I say beautiful, I'm being sarcastic. I don't know why I should have to say I'm being sarcastic. You should know that. But Rachel Dolezal, how she has transitioned from being a black woman to being a white woman who wants to be black, but now she's getting paid as a white woman mm-hmm. off the black struggle in her performative pieces. How about that? You know, I'm mm-hmm. watching that very closely. Because they, they were offering her a couple of reality show TVs, book deals, you know, a tour, you know, and she's about to get paid out the wazoo, you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I don't know. That's the type of shit that pisses me off. And why I get to walking around looking at certain people like they've lost their damn minds, you know. But um, it's just, it's, it's interesting. But, yeah, you know, I want to do a show specifically. I got some notes here. And, you know, I'm talking specifically about the black community and different movements. I think that deserves its own show. Because, I mean, I talked about some of it in, you know, the show today. But I really want to get down to to the nitty-gritty, as they, you know, basically would say. Um, and that would be in part two, which will be after my Donald Trump show, unless some some real good foolishness happens between now and then, and then, you know, we'll push it back a little bit, but know that it's coming. Or, you know, maybe Raina and I will just do part two and then just put it out there, and then you all can catch it in the archives. How about that? You Whatever know, you so, want to do. Yeah. yeah, I think I'd rather have you and me... Um, privately record part two and then we'll just put it out there because I already know it's going to be some delicious fuckery in the next couple of weeks that I'm going to want to talk about you know and I don't want to disappoint people but you know I do believe talking about black and Latino you know and Asian as well as indigenous culture and movements you know so it's not just going to be specifically black I want to get, you know, all the people of color that I can, you know, mention some of the movements, you know, because, like I said, you know, we talk about, you know, Latinos, you got Mestizos, you got Chicanos. When I talk about the Black Power Movement, you notice I always include the Young Lords. And, you know, you had a lot of Asians that were there. And I'm like, you know, and I feel that it deserves its own show. You know, what we were talking about today was general, but we hit upon a lot of, valuable information that needs to be shared and basically, you know, got a little long-winded there, but I think it was needed because in order for you to understand what people of color have gone through when trying to implement, you know, these movements and these so-called radical ideas, you know, I think it's important for you to see how white people were treated and how they were able to push some of this. And then maybe you'll get a better understanding as to the double standards out there and and what some of these activists and protesters are going through. Because, you know, you've got many people that are sitting at home, you know, pointing the finger and saying, you know, they need to go sit down somewhere. And, and, you know, but these are some of the same people that will be the first in line, you know, for any type of benefits 
that come from this, right? And so I posted an article on my wall last week um, talking about, you know, so-called black civil rights activists from the past, and she was critiquing Black Lives Matter, but yet she still has not told us which, you know, organization or movement she was a part of. And that's been, a you know, a question for a while, and she never says which one. So anyway, that article was filled with nothing but um, respectability, politics, elitism, you know, all of that. So we need to be aware and, of that. And I think to a certain degree there's ageism a part of it, too, because a lot of – it seems like a lot of um, older black people seem to be resentful that um, – you know, the the people who are in charge of this don't look like them, you know? Exactly. Exactly. You but know, the, the thing about it rights. is, but the thing about it is, is that the thing about it is, is that the old civil rights movement didn't look like them either. Because, exactly. you know, while, while the, while the people who got in front of the microphone might've been slightly older, remember King was in his, like, he was in his late twenties, early thirties. You right. know what I mean? He was still exactly. a young man. You know, even though the movement obviously took a toll on him, you can, you know, he looks a little older than one might expect. You know what I mean? At different points of his life. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the the children, it was children, little children, you know, teenagers, college-age students, you know what I mean? That, um, you know, traditional-age college students, you know, people like that that were in the streets. It wasn't, you know, I mean, there were older people, but it was mainly young people and even children who were out here marching, people who couldn't even vote, who were out here fighting for voting rights. That's right. That's right. That's right. And that's, that's what's happening now is the young people. And that's why when I refer to BLM, I always say the young people because it's the young folks out here. And that's why I'm looking at, you know, us old fogies is like either help them or get out the way. You know, and I mean that. And, you know, it was interesting because Raina was laughing at me when I um, decided I was going to catch the um, bus with all the young guys or young young kids to Cleveland for the um, Black Lives Matter conference. Because for those of you who know me, you know I'll hop a flight in a minute. But I was like, I want to ride the bus. This should be a good experience, right? And I remember Raina was laughing. She was like, you must really like them, right? And I really do. But it was young people. You know, Black um, Black Youth Project 100 is the one who sponsored that charter bus. And, you know, basically 90% of the people on the bus were part of Black Youth Project so they're young, and just to see these young people be themselves and be happy and to hear and know firsthand that they understand what's happening out here, how it impacts their future, how it impacts their families, how it will impact their children and grandchildren. And, you know, I was just sitting back quiet, just soaking it all in, and, you know, and they were so sweet, you know, like I said, you know, I was being love-bombed all over the place. You know, they were like, oh, well, you know, let me let me pull your luggage for you. Yeah, grab that. <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> um, it, was, it was great. It was great. I learned a lot from those young people. 
those young we we grossly underestimate these young people. We really have. We've done them a disservice, and this is why you know I'm tr- you know trying to change. It takes time, you know, and I mistakes will be made. Mistakes have been made. I've been corrected. I correct it, and we move on. But man, I'm telling you guys, if you ever if you get a chance to sit down with some of these young people, the activists and the protesters, you will hear. Not only here, you will see their passion, you know, and they light up when they're talking about it. They're excited. They're hopeful for the future. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, this, I'm like, you know, wow. You know, and so I don't know. I just, I, it's really hard for me to put into words, you know, just the love, you know, that I feel for them now. You know, after that experience in Cleveland, it just, I don't know, it it actually changed my life, and it changed my perspective on a number of things, which, you know, rather surprised me. But when you open your mind and you open your heart and, you know, you sit down and talk to people and really understand and hear, you you know, where they're coming from and what they want, and you take that and you set it next to your experiences in life, your knowledge and, you know, you, you tie that together with current events as well as history because, you know, history repeats itself. It's just different players in the game, you know, you know, but still the same. So, yeah, you know, um, you know, it's, it was a lot that I wanted to talk about and that I wanted to get into. And so I'll tell you guys to go and look up Black is a Country. Black is a Country, that was by um, Amiri Baraka, also known as Leroy Jones. But Amiri Baraka, Black is a Country. And so I read little parts of it, so this will give me the opportunity to read the rest of it and kind of expand on part two of this show. But, um, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, basically it's like, you know, uh, it talks about the paradoxical relationship between race and, you know, race and economics. And so that's what I really wanted to get into the latter part of the show, but that's going to be on part two because I think that's, um, yeah, that's geared more towards what people of color have gone through. So we're going to talk about the intersection of race and economics and how sometimes racial matters are basically put on the back burner and you have people out here saying, no, it's not about race, it's about economics, and not understanding that there's an, you know, there's an intersection there. Because with people of color, namely black and Latino and indigenous people, it's, it's about both. But for the most part, it's, it's about race. And so we need to understand that, and, you know, we can talk about that paradox a little bit more because um, that's rather intricate, you know, trying to talk about that intersection there because, you know, this is something that we see across the board. I'll give you an example of it, the feminist movement. And feminism today, so, you know, you have the black feminists, you have the womanists, and then you have the mainstream feminists. 
And, you know, there have been charges of racism, which, you know, they have merit. And basically, um, you know, how, you know, feminists, some of the white feminists of today, how they're basically trying to ignore the part about race. And, I mean, that's even within the secular community. That's even within the religious community. I mean, you know, we can give you a number of examples but, you know, in this case, I don't, when we do the second show, you know, I may give a couple of examples, but I think we really need to get into, you know, the meat of that particular relationship and talk about why it's a paradox. So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, is there anything else you want to add on to this? Um, No, I mean, I don't really see it as a paradox, but... Um, People in that that white feminists are, you know, are given to um, ignore race because they benefit from white privilege. So I don't, right. <laughs> I don't really well, see I mean, how that as a paradox. So well, I'm not looking at it from that perspective. I'm just talking. I'm looking at it from the perspective of a black person when we, we try to go out and we try to talk about these things. How you know white people deflect and how they try to change the conversation and how sometimes it's kind of hard to make that transition. Because it's like, you know, when you try to explain racism to white people or talk about white supremacy or their white privilege, you know, it's like a deer in headlights. They don't get it. Yeah, well, they don't have to. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, know, a a comparison to that is when you try to talk to men, you know, some men, about patriarchy and sexism. They don't get it. You know, so so I guess that's probably one of the reasons why I see it as, you know, somewhat paradoxical. But, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that, you know. And that's okay. You know, people see some of these things differently, but, um, you know, we're going to talk about a number of things. We're going to talk about Lorraine Hansberry's um, um, book, A Raisin in the Sun, you know, her play. And, you know, some people were saying that basically um, that it was a radical play. And it's interesting, so I need to do some more reading on that. So you all can do that with me. You know, go look up A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry and, and you know, look it up how some people saw it as a radical play. So I need to do some more research on that because I was basically going to just touch on it a little bit. But, you know, this is something that I just want to know for myself. You know, so basically, you know, the crazy radicals, you know, as as the mainstream would like to call some of us and some of the people of the past, they want to call us crazy. They try to um, basically denigrate anything that we say, you know, take away any type of – accolades that may come our way, you know, it's just really interesting how radical has become a cuss word, you know, or an epithet, if you will, socialist, communist. And if you go back and you look at some of our, you know, heroes of the day, you know, quite a few of them were affiliated with the Socialist Party, and some were affiliated with the Communist Party. And that's why sometimes it's difficult to bring up um, 
certain people, and it's not because what they've written and their ideas are bad. That's not it. It's because you have people out here that would try to basically um, deflect and also detour or derail the conversation, but like, oh, he was a socialist, he was a communist, we can't take anything he says seriously. And, I mean, we've all had and seen, you know, these types of examples. Am I correct, Raina? Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, guys, you know, that's what's there, you know. So, basically, you know, I'm kind of done um, since I've decided that when I talk about black power and, you know, black power movement, civil rights movement, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, young disciples. I'm also going to talk a little bit about the Nation of Islam, very little about them, but some um, is interesting. And, you know, we're going to talk about, like I said, Huey Newton. I think I talked about, yeah, I talked about Stokely a little bit on the social justice podcast that we'll be releasing soon. Um, yeah, you know, I'm going to tell you all some other names that you need to go and look up that we'll be talking about on part two. We'll be talking about William, William Worthy, Albert Cleage. We'll be talking more about Mary Baraka. We'll talk about Sonia Sanchez, um, Caesar, uh, Chavez, right? Chavez. And Chavez. And we'll talk about a number of them. We'll also talk about Robert Williams. Now, I really want you guys to go and look him up. Robert Williams is the one that says, we will shoot back. He wrote that book. So, um, yeah. Yeah, guys, I'm trying to give you a head start about what we'll be talking about. Um, we'll be talking about the Afro-Asian Conference mm-hmm. uh, in 1955. Um, and the Panthers, of course. Exactly, exactly. The Black Panthers, you know, the, the Young Lords and a number, you know, of different things. And we'll talk about how the Black Power Movement and the Civil Rights Movement, how it overlaps. You know, and, you know, and that was one of the reasons why I made that statement earlier about people putting these activists and, you know, different leaders or so-called leaders on pedestals. Because you, we gotta, we got to understand these people have flaws. They make mistakes. They're human. And, I mean, I feel that each and every last one of us have, you know, leadership skills within us. You know, so it's interesting. Um, I found some information from David Averill, you know, talking about these different types of social movements, and he's a cultural anthropologist. So, um, yeah, you know, and I mean, it's been a number of movements, you know, that you know that I didn't talk about today, but you can look it up. The anti-globalization movement. Uh, it's just so many. The so free many. lovers. Yeah, yeah. The free free lovers are, like, from, like, the early, like, from, like, the earliest 20th century and and late 19th century, and they believed basically in, um, basically that, you know, that they were against marriage um, in terms of the way that it 
subjugates women. They believe that women right. should, you know, be able to, um, that people should be able to prostitute themselves if they so saw, um, you know, just seeing that um, the way in which society operated, you know, was um, damaging to women and to their sexuality. So, exactly. yep. I actually read exactly. somewhere that Sojourner Truth had some had some um, some beliefs that were free love friendly. So I, I haven't been Uh-oh. able to I haven't been able to like figure out um, how true that is. But I was reading it somewhere, and um, if anybody finds anything about you know Sojourner Truth or other um, you know other Black people who might have been involved in the free love movement, please let me know. So. Okay, you know, I'm writing that down, right? Free yeah. Love, sojourner Truth. All mm-hmm. right. Yeah. That should be interesting. Let me make sure I put a box around that so I can make sure I go look that up. Let me put two stars next to that. So, you know, but... Um, you know, again, you know, it's like, you know, a lot of things that we didn't talk about, but you can go and look it up on your own um, about these different types of movements, you know, uh, you know how some of the movements were, you know, um, interchangeable, if you will. Uh, you got to you know, maybe look at, you know, scopes and who were specific, you know, the people that were specifically being targeted. And so um, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I have some great links. I may post them. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. But, um, yeah, go look this stuff up. It's actually really exciting. Um, and social movements, this is how people make history. You know, being the nice girl, the nice boy, you know, rarely do nice people make history. Let's just be honest. And there are going to be times when you have to act undignified to maintain your dignity, if you will. Mm-hmm. It happens. Mm-hmm. It happens. And so, um, yeah, guys, this is, I mean, you know, it's, it's a fascinating history. And I'm really hoping that I, you know, piqued your interest a little bit because there's so much to read, there's so much to share. And you know, I just think it's important that you all go out and let me tell you the name of the book. And I haven't, I didn't get to anything from this book today. And the name of this book is Black Movements in America. Again, that's Black Movements in America, and it was written by Cedric J. Robinson. Again, Cedric J. Robinson, and again, it's talking about revolutionary thought and radical movements. And so. Um, Man, this this is fantastic. So yeah, yeah, this is going to be great because you know it's a good book. You know from you know what I've read of it, just little things. But yeah, I'm going to expound on this quite a bit more. And you know since I'm sharing you know book stuff, whoops, um, you know whoops, no I didn't. Oh, damn it. So. This is what happens when you touch your tablet too hard. But um, we're going to do another show specifically talking about how America or American immigrants became white. I think that would be a good show. Of course, I don't even know why I'm saying this. 
you know, so somebody can go out there and so anyway. You know that pisses me off a little bit, right? You talking about how how people steal your shit? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, didn't even know what the damn word anomaly meant and now she wanna talk about she's not we're not an anomaly. So anyway, that's a whole different story. And you know, still a shit from our podcast. You know. And so oh, you know, put my name on the prayer list. I think I'm gonna put my own damn name on the prayer list. So, um, yeah, you know, so Negroes with Guns. That's the book by Robert F. Williams. Um, you know, going because I told you, you know, he said we will shoot back. And so, you yeah, know, there was another gonna... there was another our, uh, author that wrote we um we will shoot back. Yeah, so that, that's I'm correct myself. Yeah. yeah, sorry about mm-hmm. that. That's why I'm going to my little Kindle thing now and looking at these books. So yeah, Robert F. Williams, Negroes with Guns. And for those people who are laboring under the delusion that civil rights movement was all nonviolent and that they didn't have guns. Yes, they did. It was the guns that kept them alive. And I keep mm-hmm. posting that PBS And even the nonviolent like, even the nonviolent protesters were protected in many instances by people with guns. So yeah, there may have been there may have been a uh, a group of of nonviolent protesters in a particular area or um you know people who were doing voting registration in a particular area who were nonviolent who didn't have guns. But in a lot of cases there were people with guns behind the scenes. Exactly. And the and, and the and the whole reason that nonviolence was even effective is because it was leveraged with violence. So right. white people couldn't white people couldn't, you know, had had no choice but to support the nonviolent um, tactics of you know King and others, because the alternative was black people taking vengeance and taking um and, and taking you know their lives into their own hands and you know fighting against right. the state that was that was oppressing them. So they had no no choice but to support nonviolence. Exactly. That's why King was that's why King was effective. He would not have been effective. Otherwise, exactly, exactly. As a matter of fact, our show after Donald Trump is going to be how immigrants became white, and I'm doing that because yeah, I know someone's going to steal the idea, but I'm gonna go ahead and set it up because you know I want to talk about it, and I want to talk about it correctly. You know, not just some shit. You know. So anyway, but um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, um, it's it's the whole thing is interesting. But you know, we got a few minutes left, and since we're talking about guns and all of that, I have not followed up on you know the report that the Oath Keepers they were supposed to have been arming fifty black men in Ferguson, and I've been caught up in so much of my life and things and dealing with it that I didn't get a chance to follow up on that. But the old keepers, you know, they were claiming they were going to, going to arm 50 black men down in Ferguson. Now, whether that happened or not, I don't know. I have to go and look it up. And let me write that down. 
because then when I find the information, I'm just going to post that. That's no big deal. Um, 50 black men Ferguson. Um, I remember when I saw that, and when I first saw it, you know, I was looking at it with great suspicion because, in general, the Oath Keepers have not been known to be our new BFFs, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, still kind of, you know, I need to keep a closer eye on this and see what's happening. And, you know, basically, if the Oath Keepers are out there, you know, being um, peacemakers, as they would like to call it, and marching with the people in Ferguson, you know, part of me, that cynical side, is still saying, what is their agenda? Right. And I think we need to keep that in mind as well. So, um, yeah, you know, just today alone, I figured out about five good shows that we're going to bring to you guys. Some will be live, some will be pre recorded, but they will be coming to you. So, you know, I'm looking at my Kindle. Of course, I'm moving. I had to go and buy me another one of those pens and shit. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been, I, I picked up about three books by Peniel E. Joseph, P-E-N-I-E-L-E Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H. And I, I actually enjoy his writing a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And so I found some really good books. Um, this one here. Is called Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, A Narrative History of Black Power in America. And, again, that's Peniel E. Joseph. And so, um, like I said, I gave the book that we were reading today by Cedric Johnson. He also wrote another book called Black Marxism. So when the internationalists, when international socialist organization had their conference in Chicago, um, earlier this summer, they were talking about Karl Marx and um, one of the young men who presented, you know, had a presentation. He was talking about Cedric Johnson's, Robinson's, I'm sorry, Cedric Robinson's book, and he was saying, you know, where he, um, where basically he, that Cedric Johnson got it wrong. I'm sorry, Cedric Robinson. Why am I trying to call him Johnson? So anyway, Cedric Johnson, he was saying that Cedric Johnson, Robinson, got some things wrong. I have my notes, and I need to go and pull those notes and, you know, do a comparison. But, you know, he was talking about Karl Marx and, you know, how Karl Marx was talking about blacks in America and, you know, how America is, how can I put it? I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this nicely. Because when I'm talking to my friends, I don't have to be nice about it. So basically, the state of America is determined by how it's treating its African Americans. And so if you go back and you look up Hubert Harrison, Hubert Henry Harrison, who was one of my heroes, he was considered the black Socrates. And so Hubert Harrison said, you know, and he repeated, he just rephrased what Karl Marx said. He said the touch he said the touchstone of America is the basic condition of black Americans. So, you know, and and there's some truth to that. And that's why I find it rather ironic 
that you have these people trying to squash, you know, the movements that are taking place in this country now. However, when they had Arab Spring and they had Pink Spring and a, a number of different things in all other countries, of course, Americans were for that. But, you know, they're against black people rising up and demanding to be treated like humans and, 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 you know, demanding to not be, you know, treated to, you know, double standards and being put in jail. I mean, a young man who had a $5 theft, he was found in jail dead. Of course, they're saying it was natural causes, but he had been in jail for a long for, for a $5 theft? Really? So, you know, we need to do something. I need to look that up because that is very disheartening. So, anyway, my name is Kim, Kimberly Ville. We are black free thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Thank you very kindly for joining me today, Raina Rush. You're welcome, and I look forward yeah. to joining you again next time. All right, mm-hmm. now. All right, y'all. Have a good weekend, everybody. Love you. Right, Bye-bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.